0: And welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people on lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Anya. They are an author and social work student in New York City, and they have bipolar disorder and a history of anorexia. Their goal is to help people learn that mental health recovery and creative dreams are both achievable. So, I'm really excited to talk to Anya today. So, Anya, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit more about yourself?
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Sarah. Um, I'm really excited to be here. And thank you so much for creating this space for uh, folks to share, especially in these kind of isolating times that we continue to find ourselves in. Um, So, I'm Anya. I was born in Massachusetts, grew up in North Carolina, and then moved to New York City when I started my undergrad at Columbia. Um, I majored in English and theater, um, and I thought I wanted to get a PhD in English, but it turns out I really didn't, Um, and I I left uh, graduate school with a master's, spent a couple of years trying to figure myself out. Um, I took a, a really great job teaching young adults in foster care. Um, and that really made me fall in love with the idea of doing something in social work um, and, and working in the mental health field. Um, mental health has obviously been a, a huge part of my life. Um, I have struggled with mental illness pretty much as long as I can remember. Um, I have always had some sort of like identifiable mood disorder. It was eventually diagnosed just this past summer as bipolar two, which is uh, basically like periods of depression followed by periods of elevated mood. Um, and it took me a really long time to get that diagnosis and kind of understand what was going on with me. And at the same time, I was seeing um, other young adults really struggling with access to mental health, quality mental health care Um and so I wanted to do something sort of with that. Um, the other the other piece of that side of things is um, I've been in recovery from an eating disorder since 2015, um, which is a long time now. Um, and it's super, super difficult to get quality care for eating disorders, um, especially for people who are not significantly underweight. Um, And so my research project for my social work master's is about um, kind of redefining the way that we think about um, anorexia and restrictive eating disorders in general. And so that's, that's another kind of thing that I'm I'm really passionate about. Um, And now I'm going to talk about my book. Um, So I've also always been really involved in creative arts. I've done theater since pretty much since I could walk. Now, my, that um, my PhD in English was going to be looking at um, performances of Shakespeare. That's mostly what I like to do in theater. I direct um, productions of Shakespeare's plays with a focus on um, race, gender, and sexuality um, and making those things kind of legible for a modern audience. And then I'm also a creative writer. Um, I started writing my novel, Queen of All, when I was 11 years old, um, which was... the same year of onset of anorexia for me um and not a great time in any like chubby unpopular gay kids life um middle school um so it took me probably 10 years um to finish the first draft of the novel and um it was very tied to me in my like journey to mental health. And I kind of thought that like the book being done was going to be the prize at the end of the rainbow of that journey, but it wasn't, that wasn't, that wasn't how it worked out. I got, I got to the end of that and I got to a place of like more health myself, but there was still a really long way to go on bringing the book to people. Um, and so I think the last couple of years of my life have really been about figuring out how I can, do the work that I need to do to be successful with this book, to bring it to readers, to help audiences connect with it, um, while also focusing on myself and what I need. and advocating for people who, um, want to live a, like, richly creative life while also living a happy, healthy life. I think we have a really, um, pretty damaging idea that's become very ingrained in our society that like art comes from a place of like suffering or like internal torment or like the way to have interesting stories to tell is to be in pain like psychic pain um and I think that's a pretty bad narrative um and I I want to try to do what I can to dismantle that and then Specifically for bipolar disorder, which I don't think a lot of people really understand very well, um, creativity is actually considered to be one of the hallmark signs of bipolar. And a lot of people who have bipolar disorder experience these kind of moments of wild creativity during episodes of mania or hypomania. Um, So I know that, like, for me, I always did the vast majority of my writing in these, like, 10, 15, 25-hour chunks with no breaks. And I didn't recognize for years that, like, that was hypomania. Um, And so once I got diagnosed and got on medication, which for me has been the most effective treatment, I have had to, like, completely reimagine my creative practice and my creative life. Um, And, you know, I went through this, like, pretty typical, I think, stage of, like, what if I never write again? Um, what if I, that, what if that was like the last interesting thing I ever did? Um, and I, I think that that really hasn't been true for me. Um, my writing has gotten better, I think, because I can, um, there's less, I write fewer words now, but they're better ones, um, with more focus and attention to craft. Um, and so I think that story is really important to me. And then the other thing that's really important to me is this book um which I can talk a little bit about um so Queen of All is the first in a planned trilogy um it's a god I'm so bad about talking about this book you would think that like eight months after your book comes out you would have figured out how to give a I would have figured out how to give like a concise summary of it by now but I still can't um uh, look at the back look at the back cover. My editor did a great job summarizing <laughs> I and I did a lousy, I do a lousy job. Um, so it's a it's a young adult fantasy kind of in the classic YA fantasy adventure vein. Um, playing with a lot of the tropes of like rediscovering magic and coming of age and figuring out who you are. Um, but I wanted to bring my own experiences as a queer person and um with the kind of journey towards body positivity and just representing a really different kind of protagonist. Um, when I was a kid, I like devoured books like this one. I mean, you can, um, I guess the people listening will not be able to see, um, I live in a New York city apartment by myself with one cat and 600 novels, um, and 300 square feet. Right. So like clearly, you know, I go through a lot of books um, and my favorite was always like the YA fantasy adventure coming of age story. Um, The interesting thing about those books is that they're always about a protagonist who feels very different than everybody else around her. It's often her. Sometimes it's a boy. Um, Feels very different. Feels like no one around can understand them. Like nobody can connect with them. Um, which were themes that I really related to when I was a young adult reader. But if you look at who these protagonists are, they're always like white, thin, able-bodied, straight, cisgender. Um, so like, they're just like, they're the odd, they're the oddball or the outcast, but not for any of the reasons that like, in my experience, tend to make the young people that are reading those books into oddballs or outcasts um, that don't get acceptance in their community in the real world. Um, so I wanted to kind of write a book that would be a story like those stories, but also let some, some of those young readers actually see themselves in, in those kinds of stories. Um, and that's my book. It came out on June 8th, um, from Zenith Publishing, which is a small press. Um, and both of the sequels are forthcoming, Um, there's one coming in, uh, book two is coming in October, book three doesn't have a release date yet. Um, so I am also in this really exciting place of starting to think about where else my career is going to go because my, me and my life have always really been defined by this book. Um, this is, I mean, publishing this book has been my dream since I was 11 years old and then, like, eight months ago, I did it, and now it's done, um, which is in some ways very scary, but in other ways has, has left me um, with a lot of possibility to imagine, like, what other things might I write? What other artistic projects might I I take on? What other ways can I help, like, give back to my communities other than by, like, you know – my plan of like curing homophobia by writing this one book, like what are other things I could do towards that goal? So it's, I'm, I'm also in kind of an exciting place right now. Um, and I'll be graduating from NYU with my master's in social work in like three months. Um, so hopefully that'll be a, a way to make some of that change as well
0: yeah you've got so much going on and so many good things um it's really exciting um and since the listeners can't see all of your great books you seem to have them organized by color which i think is very pretty
1: thank you surprisingly controversial a lot of people hate it
0: yeah i I, like my stance on it as long as you can like find the thing you're looking for to me that would be the struggle (laughs)
1: Yeah, I am. This is really nerdy. I keep them all in a database so that I don't accidentally buy the same title twice. Um, And I include the spine colors.
0: See, That's the way to do it. (laughs) So we have a lot of things that we could talk about or that I can ask you about. Um, But I want to start with, you mentioned how it took a while to get the bipolar diagnosis. So can you talk a little bit about that journey and then what getting that diagnosis meant to you?
1: Yeah. Um I don't know if it was really a journey. It was just like I you know, I went to a psychologist for the first time when I was probably 13 or 14 and they were like, "Oh, You have anxiety and depression because that's what we diagnose people with, which is like, I I say that flippantly. I want to be like Chris clear that like anxiety and depression are real mental illnesses and they can be very, very serious and life defining for people who have them, but they are not the only two mental illnesses that exist. Um, and I think there can be a real lack of understanding of what other kinds of symptomology look like. Um, Nobody really brought up the idea of misdiagnosis again until, um, when I was in eating disorder treatment, there was some talk about the addition of some other kind of non mood related diagnoses like OCD, um, to my chart, but generally like when you're in active, um, an active phase of an eating disorder, they don't really want to make too many assumptions about what's going on beneath that. Um, and then after I left treatment, I wanted to do anything except think about mental health for a little while, because I just spent five months with my entire life on a complete hold while I like, got my brain right, um, which was not, as you can maybe tell, um, I like to be busy, and it was not an easy thing for me to do to like take a break from my whole life. Um... I didn't take a break for my whole life. I convinced them to let me stay in school instead of taking a break. Like I, in retrospect, should have. Um, but. And I, you know, those are all very classic actions for somebody with undiagnosed bipolar disorder. Can't stop. Can't take a break. Um, can't figure out making like lots of, you know, pretty bad and impulsive decisions. Um, I think I I avoided a lot of the most serious consequences that people with this diagnosis tend to face for a couple of reasons. Um, I had a lot of other things like kind of going for me that let me stay ahead of it. Um, I've always done really well academically. So if I have like a depressive period and couldn't work on my schoolwork, I've always known, like, I do assignments as soon as they're assigned to me so that with that, like, burst of energy that I get so that if I can't work on it, oh, well, it's already done. Um, You know, and so, like, things like that, there are things about me. I'll also say that, like, I have had a ton of privilege. I've had parents who can support me financially when I needed, like, intensive care for mental health. I have almost always had health insurance and access to um, psychiatric care. Um, and so all of those things have meant that um, as much as the symptoms of bipolar disorder have been a struggle for me throughout my life, um, I haven't had the kind of uh, I haven't had the kind of suffering based on them that, a lot of like for example the people that I, that I work with now in my clinical internship do um and that's not necessarily a difference in the severity of the symptom it's a difference in the severity of the consequence that you face for your symptoms based on um based on like where you come from in life like if I had a manic episode and, um, I'm looking at it right now, bought a $400 Dutch oven, even though I, um, was working for a social work agency and that was what, like 300% of my spending money for the month. Right. Um, that's okay. I still wouldn't like be homeless or not have food to Cook and eat in my Dutch oven. Um, you know, like I, I could be insulated from the consequences of some of the suffering that comes from those symptoms. Um, so I had it about two years ago. I had a doctor suggest to me that I might have bipolar disorder um, based on the fact that a previous psychiatrist had, had kind of insisted I start taking antidepressants. And I had a pretty classic manic episode triggered by the antidepressants, which is like a hallmark sign of bipolar disorder. For Whatever reason, that doctor didn't, like, crack the code. But another one did and suggested it. And I stormed out of her office. I was like, no way. That is so offensive. It was an intake with, a fir- with the first time I'd seen the psychiatrist. And I was like, you don't know me. You don't know anything about me. How can you, like, make this assumption about me? I will never see you again. Off I go. Um, And I think that really came from, um, uh, stigma again. I think that there's been a lot of really great advocacy work done around, um, like anxiety and depression diagnoses. Um, and a lot more like light has been brought to the fact that like, um, lots and lots of like quote unquote, normal healthy functional people can have those diagnoses and like go about their lives. Um, Bipolar disorder is considered a severe mental illness, and I think not nearly as much work has been done to to destigmatize that. Um, I, you know, I think a lot of like, for example, celebrities have spoken up about either depression or anxiety diagnoses or diagnoses within those diagnostic categories. Not as many with like other disorders, especially um, like severe mental illness. Um, which is a problematic classification, but I don't have to go into that. Um, and so I did, I walked right out of her, her office and I never went back. And when her office sent me a bill for the appointment that i walked out of, I ignored it. Oops. Sorry. <laughs> um, and I was, I, I, I called my dad who's a physician and I was like, isn't that ridiculous? And he was like, ah! he, he, he was very careful not to say that he wanted to give me a diagnosis because my father, not my physician, but he seemed to think it wasn't such a terrible idea. Um, And I think that kind of got me started thinking so that when the psychiatrist I see now was like, so we went up and we went up and we went up on the antidepressant and it is not working. Like it's helping with the depression, but not with the anxiety, Um, and anxiety was what I was calling these periods of time where like I couldn't sit still and I couldn't focus on anything and I felt so much pressure to get things done and I got really irritable um, and I got really impulsive. Um, and it wasn't working with that. And she was like, would you want to try thinking maybe something else? Um, so I wasn't like handed a diagnosis. I was handed a medication, um, the mood stabilizing medication. Um, and I took it and then immediately, almost immediately, I started to feel better in a way that like, I never have in my entire life. Um, the diagnosis itself, like, I wouldn't say that it has like become part of my identity or that like the, the word, you know, bipolar is, is not necessarily meaningful to me as such. Um, I think diagnostic, this is this is like an essay this is not an interesting topic for a podcast so i'm going to try to keep it brief but like um psychiatric diagnostic criteria are really really problematic and they're not really they're not based on a lot of them aren't based on rigorous science or rigorous research they're just kind of words that we use for clinicians to be able to help have conversations with each other to treat people more effectively and some of them are good ones and some of them are bad ones. I think bipolar is like a pretty useful diagnostic category. Um, so I, I don't find it to be like personally, I guess, immensely important. What it's been really important for is that like having this diagnosis instead of a different incorrect diagnosis meant access to treatment that is like actually effective for me. Um, and I think again, with the kind of catch all of anxiety and depression, there's a lot of focus on like antidepressants as a treatment, SSRIs and SNRIs in particular. Um, and the fact that those medications are guess and check, and you don't really know if they're working and their onset is really slow. Um, and all of those things are true. But my experience was also that like, Hey, if the medication you're on, isn't doing anything, maybe that's not cuz you have to give it, you know, another 16 weeks to work. Maybe that's because it's not the right medication because it's not treating the right disorder. Um so that that has definitely been the impactful part for me was recognizing that like oh hey, medication can actually help. And it's been a really eye-opening experience for me as someone who um you know, will hopefully be Providing, well, I do already in a, in a non-clinical capacity as an, as an intern, but hopefully will eventually have my own practice and be providing direct mental health services to people um, that that difference that the diagnostic category can make. Because for a long time, I didn't see a lot of value to that label. And I didn't see, I didn't, I didn't feel like medication could be that helpful. Um, all the value I'd gotten out of treatment I've got, I'd gotten in therapy. Um, and then it turns out that actually it's the right medication that's helpful, not just anyone. Um, and so that's been really, I think, valuable from a valuable lesson for me to take. It's also been really valuable for me to recognize that that stigma does live within myself because I think I'm like, I would not have said that there was any chance when I walked into the, that psychiatrist's office, I would not have said there was any chance I was acting out of internalized stigma. I would have said like, I work in the mental health field. I've been in recovery for years. I've been seeing a therapist since I was in middle school. Like I don't have any stigma about mental illness. Why would I? Um, and, but I, I did and I still do. Um, and we all do. And so I think that has also been a really important reframing that has come for me in the wake of this diagnosis. And it is, it's the reason I'm, um, a lot of people might like choose to keep their diagnostic information slightly more private. Um, I, I, it's the reason I'm talking about it with you here tonight. Um, I bring it up all the time at school. Like I want people to be aware that, um, there isn't, Any mental health diagnosis that limits your ability to like function in the world, do the things you want to do, be the person you want to be, there are, you know, different challenges and sometimes some some impairments or some needed supports that go with different diagnoses, but there's no diagnosis that's like a death sentence to the life that you want to live.
0: And I appreciate you sharing all of that. And like you said, I think um, like there's been a lot of great work with depression and anxiety and normalizing going to therapy. But there is still, as you said, that stigma for certain things. And, you know, just by sharing it for you, like it's helping break that down. So, of course, mental health has been a big part of your life. And then part of the reason why you're now studying it and wanting to work in a paid capacity Um, so, is there any, like, are you ever worried that, like, your own mental health struggles could affect your ability to help others with their mental health?
1: Oh, yeah, all the time. I mean, um, the mental health field is not necessarily, like, super hospitable to disability of any kind. Um, uh, like... You know, I'm at a clinical internship right now, and um I, I work with some folks with the same diagnosis I do. I'll we'll get into that in a minute. But um the people that I, I work with are like super understanding and super encouraging, and also like the structure of social work school is that for the whole year, you get three days off from your internship. And if you miss more than that, they won't let you have your license. And so like. If I need a fourth day off because I'm having a breakdown like what happens um I mean admittedly like I would be okay I could make up the hours but like it there is a really high burden on um on this kind of work um there is still I I' have also found um stigma less in, um, the folks that I, I work with, I think for people for professionals who've been working in the field, a lot of them I found have worked through this. But for my fellow students, um, I do notice there's a lot of separation between like us, you know, high, high achievers probably struggle with some anxiety, definitely go to therapy, all that good stuff, and them, and them are clients, and those are the people who have serious mental illness diagnoses. We don't. They do. And so it can be, I, I sometimes like I've been in classrooms where I feel like I have to be like, like, actually, this is not something that only happens to aliens from another planet. First of all, like, that's not a good way to think about your clients. And secondly, like, I am sitting right here. Um, and I am in this room with you and I'm getting the same degree you're getting. And, um, GPA is probably better than yours. <laughs> like We don't need to, um, it, it, it doesn't need to be. You know, we think of stigma as coming from like a, a place of like harsh emotion and rejection and like anger or hatred and those kinds of really negative emotions. But stigma can also come in the form of this kind of like infantilization um, or this kind of like othering. I guess. And and that that's been a, a challenge that, you know, I, I have definitely seen. Um, and then the other really big question, um, and this is an ongoing question, is self-disclosure um, for a long time in therapy, um, in, in psychology, like classic Freud sitting on a you lie on a couch. You talk about your mother psychology. The idea was that the therapist was the tabula rasa, the blank slate and showed no emotion and told you nothing about themselves. Um, and that idea has pretty much been completely dismantled in contemporary therapeutic practice. It's, I think a pretty bad idea. Um, and increasingly there's an understanding that the use of yourself and your own experiences is valuable in taking care of other people and specifically that lived experience is um, Can be a really valuable thing in in supporting somebody that you that you work with in a therapeutic relationship. I I mean this is like very fundamental to why I want to go into this field. Um, the uh place where I was treated for my eating disorder used hires almost exclusively recovered clinicians, so people who have a personal experience with an eating disorder of their own that they're willing to share with clients. And I couldn't have done it without that. Like it was so, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. It was so hard. If someone who I knew hadn't, who I didn't know had been through it themselves had been like, here's a sandwich. You have to eat it. I would have thrown it in their face. Like I couldn't have done it. Right. Um, Knowing that the person who was asking me to do that thing for myself was someone who'd been through it themselves was like, that was the only reason a lot of days that I was able to make it through. Um, And I also like, I I continue to work with a um, clinician for my own therapy with, with lived experiences in mental health that are somewhat similar to mine. And again, like I find that really helpful. I am starting to recognize now, and this is why they make you go to school before you're allowed to go into practice. Starting to recognize now that I don't want to paint with a broad brush. So like the information about my own mental health history will always be available to clients if they want to go looking for it. Right. I go on podcasts and I talk about it. I write articles about it. I publish journal chapters about it. Like I, I, it's not a secret for anyone who wants to look for it. It's not always the right decision to share it, um, to bring it in. Um, because sometimes that doesn't make enough space for the other person who's supposed to be the person that it's all about in that moment. And so that, that's something that I'm hopefully going to continue to learn how to get better at, at finding that, finding those moments where it isn't, isn't the right thing to bring in. And I guess the, the, the final thing is like thinking about, um, you know, can, can working in a mental health field potentially be like, triggering or set my own uh like recovery back. Um sometimes I worry about this with getting into um the eating disorders field as I might eventually like to do. Haven't tried that yet, so I guess I'm just going to have to wait and see how it goes. Um I think that's pretty far that feels pretty far behind me a lot of the time. Um but I don't know what it'll actually be like to be in the room with people that are you know struggling really actively. Um at the internship I'm at now, um, when I work with, like, people who also have a bipolar diagnosis, no. I mean, the only thing it really, like, triggers in me is a lot of sort of, like, righteous outrage because I really see that, like, how different the paths through, like, navigating life are. Same diagnosis, a lot of the same symptoms, but based on, um, like, systemic factors, poverty, racism child abuse, that the differences in outcomes, um, and I'm painting a very broad brush here, obviously, because like, um, I want to, you know, respect everybody's privacy completely. Um, but I, I do really like as a broad trend, I do really see, I think a lot like, you know, there, but for the grace of God goes I, but like the grace of God in this case is like privilege. Um, and so I, I think it's made me really mindful of that. Um, and maybe has given me a little bit of a, advan- some, some advantage in being able to help sort out, like, what are the symptoms caused by the diagnosis and what are the structural factors at play? Um, and so that's not some necessarily something I worry about. It's maybe something I like carry, but it doesn't, I don't, I don't, um, I think ultimately it's helpful, even if it's sometimes hard, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it does. And, you know, you mentioned earlier how, like, obviously your own mental health is so important. So it's not like you're leaving your own mental health, like, story, recovery, continued maintenance, per se, to, like, go help other people. Like, that's still going to be there. So if something does happen, like you're not ignoring your own self. Yeah. Now, then you also brought, you know, your life and your experiences into a fictional book um, to make sure that representation existed for your main character. So what has it been like writing a book since the age of 11? Like, was it always going to be a trilogy did you always see the first book like coming to fruition as it did
1: no so initially i conceived it as one kind of long book um i was 11 so i didn't know like how long it was going to end up being once i started writing it down i didn't have a great sense of that a lot of things i didn't have a great sense of um i i started writing it thinking, extending it to be a single long volume that changed pretty quickly. Um, but like, I did not know that the main character was gay when I started writing it. I didn't know I was gay. Um, I didn't really totally know what gay was. Um, I sort of understood. Um, I had had a crush on another girl. Um, at that point, I told my mom, another girl in my Sunday school class, I told my mom about it. Sorry, mom, this is gonna make you look bad. My mom's great. And my mom was like, that's okay. Everybody all that happens to all little girls, all girls get crushes on their friends, and it passes. Um, and the subtext there again, sorry, mom was like, you can still grow up to be normal and straight. Don't worry about it. Um, and like, I was like 11. So I was like, okay. And I just took that at face value and assumed it was true. Um, it it wasn't. Um, and I, so I didn't know I was gay. I definitely didn't know that Jenna, the the main character of the book was gay, but I did know that she was, um, in love with her best friend that when that friend like grew up and got married to a man she was like intensely jealous of that relationship um and i think a lot of those things are gonna those themes are really like universally relatable to um kids that age jen is about 14 in the first book that like you know, kids that age, like, they mature at different rates, and different kids are going to be ready for, like, having a first boyfriend or girlfriend or going on dates or um, starting to think about, like, you know, those parts of life sooner than their friends are. I was a little bit of a late bloomer in that area, especially because, like, you know, I didn't know that I was gay, um, but it's it's pretty... Um, I think it's pretty normal, like regardless of orientation for kids to have some trouble figuring out that, figuring that out with their friends as friendships, you know, start to change when young people start to change and they start to, um, you know, certainly a 14 year old is still very much a child, um, but start to move towards thinking about becoming an adult someday Um, Your your friendships change. They don't stay the same as they were. Um, And so I think that that theme has always been present. Um, I ended up, it ended up in the finished book, looking like a story about um, also coming out and unrequited romantic feelings and sort of a unrequited romantic feelings makes it sound more dramatic and much more grown up than it is. It's a first crush. Um, and I think like showing that also that experience, um, for like LGBTQ readers is also really, really important to me. So that's a big thing that changed. Um, the other thing that changed is, um, really close to publication is, um, the way that I thought about the like representation of, um, body types in the book. So, um, uh, Cece, who is the sort of love interest, she's the be- the best friend that Jenna is in love with is supposed to be the most beautiful girl in the world. And everybody says that about her. Um, and I decided very early on that she was going to be depicted as plus sized and she was going to be depicted as black. Um, because I was like, it's my fantasy book and I can decide that the beauty standard is whatever I want it to be. Beauty standards are dumb anyway and I'm making this one up. So like, there we go. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I thought that that might be, you know, something that would be valuable for, for, um, people with those identities to get to read about would be to like, be able to see their beauty being recognized by others, um, in the way that it, it, it doesn't always in that kind of like classic, like the most beautiful princess in the land fashion um, and i had written the book that way and I, I was pretty happy with it but there were all of these scenes where jenna the main character was um, thinking about her like comparing herself really negatively to cc especially in terms of appearance and particularly like really unhappy with her own body but at that point i was describing her as being like really thin Um, and that she was like jealous of someone who is more voluptuous. Um, and that just like rang so false to me throughout the entire book. Um, because that was like the exact opposite of what I had always experienced. Um, which was that like, I was a fat child, then I was a fat teenager and now I'm a fat adult. Um, and at all three of those stages, people were just awful about it. And I felt just terrible. Um, and it felt really false to me to kind of depict this character as, um, like dealing with the, the exact opposite of that, especially, I mean, it's on the one hand, like it's a fantasy world. I can make the biases, whatever I want them to be. On the other hand, like specifically, I was so tired of reading fantasy books where like the protagonist is like, none of the boys want to date me because I'm too skinny because that's not something that happens in real life. Um, So I – about a year before it got picked up for publication, I rewrote the whole book to make Jenna also be plus-sized and specifically to change the focus of all of her struggles about her body from just comparing herself to her crush who's older and prettier and more self-assured to being specifically about – she looks a certain way that other people don't like. Um, and she gets treated badly because of it a lot of the time. Um, and so that was a really big change that came like very late in the game. Um, and it's become, it's, it's interesting. I don't even think of it really as like a change. I think of it as like, I, in earlier drafts, I had been like lying to myself about what this book was supposed to be about. Um, and then like, I went back and fixed it. Um, kind of think of like less, less um you know kind of in less kind of big picture changes um i ended up bringing a lot more um like jewish mythology and some hebrew language um into the book um there's been a really like big trend towards looking at different like cultural backgrounds um in in ya fantasy and also um other thing I got sick of I'm making myself sound so reactionary like I only write because of things other people do that I don't like um, but so much so much fantasy is sort of like vaguely Christian but like not Christian on purpose just like sort of like Tolkien via C.S. Lewis via Jesus Christ to like Harry Potter um, Christianity and so I thought it would be cool to like build from something else that got added in kind of later Um, And then a lot of things that like, you know, make the book functional as a book rather than as a like collection of ideas that I wanted to express like the plot, the style, Um, you know, all of all of those things came later. um, But a lot of the scenes and the overall like big picture plot has pretty much stayed the same.
0: That's really cool to hear how it's, it's changed and how, you know, you've brought more of like, probably what it always meant to be to the surface. Um, And it sounds like you do a good job of representing so many different things.
1: I try, I can't promise I get everything right. Um, Especially because, you know, I'm not I'm writing largely about, you know, things I have experienced myself, but not exclusively, and I don't want to like you know, I don't want to limit the types of people that get to exist in this world to just the type of person I am. So I definitely don't get everything right, but um, I, I do do my best
0: right. and it's it's coming from a place of authenticity, which I think is important. Now, you shared like the story of not knowing that you were gay. Um, so what was it then like make, coming to that realization?
1: I luckily, you know, I was a theater kid. Well, maybe not luckily, but like I was a theater kid, and so that meant that I was surrounded by the other theater kids, and they were also disproportionately most so most of my friends were part of the LGBTQ community when I was a young teenager. Um and one of those friends, um who was another girl, asked me out on a date. And I think we were like 13, like we were, you know, children, Um, and I was like, I thought that I was upset about it, but I couldn't figure out why. And I took some time to think about it, and then I was like, Oh, I've I've cracked the code. It's because I really want to, and I feel like I shouldn't. Um. So that was kind of how I realized, um, like the the specific that that's how I realized that I was queer in some sense, um. I – other other things came, like, a lot later. Um, I dated men until about two years ago, um, and I still wouldn't, like – I wouldn't say that I'm, like, 100% lesbian, completely not interested in men, and I do – I have, like, been romantically involved with non-binary and trans people, too. Um, uh, I mostly – it's very important to me that like I be involved with the LGBTQ community. And that's the most important like aspect of, of my identity to me. Um, mostly I've dated women. That's probably mostly what I'll do, but like, who knows, um, in terms of gender identity, um, I, uh, sort of broadly identify as non-binary. Um, I uh generally use they them pronouns for like my public appearances, such as they are. Um uh, you know, it's on what's on my book jacket, etc. Um, I don't feel uh the reason that's so recent is because I only recently learned that some people feel an attachment to gender one way or the other. I really don't. I could care less. Um to me, it feels very kind of like loose and like, you know, the only reason, like I'm only a woman insofar as like this is the identity that I got dropped into. Um I don't feel attached to it, but I I, I certainly don't mind it. Um and um you know I, I I like to joke that like the I'm only a woman in the sense that like woman is like a cool club full of cool people that I like and like I don't mind being part of like the club of women. Um, I just, if, if gender identity is based on how you feel in your heart and soul, I don't feel it. Um, if it's based on which club you'd like to be a part of, then like, sure, I can like round up to being a woman, you know? And so I think that those, um, as you can see, I'm kind of like dancing around like identity labels, right? Like, I don't really want to say that I'm a lesbian. It definitely doesn't feel right to say that I'm bi anymore, although I use that as a term for like 10 years. Um, sometimes I'll just say I'm gay or I'm queer as kind of a shorthand for like identifying with the community. Um, I think I, I think I care very little these days about the words, um, and very much about the experience, which was not so much an experience of figuring out a word that worked as it was an experience of figuring out like, Oh, this is part of why I feel so different than everybody else. I already feel like I look different from everybody else, and I act different from everybody else, um, because of my uh, ethno-religious background and my body size and my mental, my undiagnosed mental illness. And now I've figured out like another piece of the puzzle of why I'm I feel so persistently so different than everybody else, and when people when like the other kids around me are thinking about their future lives, I'm like, I don't want a husband. Um, you know, like talking about like, you know, what's your wedding going to be like? I hope I never have to have one. Like that's how I felt when I was, you know, 14. Right. Um, when, you know, gay marriage was not, any, I never thought that it would happen so quickly. Um, and I grew up in North Carolina, where like it was not a glint in anyone's eye yet. Um, and so that that was really like it was. I think an experience of recognizing, and and I think this this comes across, this comes through in the book. I stole this experience for the book. That like I knew that there was something that was different about me. I there were a lot of things that were different about me. That sometimes made other people not be very nice to me. And I didn't know what they all were. I knew some of them. Um, But when you don't know what they are, all you're kind of left with is wondering if something is sort of wrong with you that makes other people not like you. Um, And so I went with that for a really long time. Um, And eventually I started to realize that like there are other people that are different in the same way that I'm different. And maybe I can go hang out with them instead and be nice to me, um, which like, obviously it's not, obviously it's not perfect like that, um, but it is, I think it was a very important process of, of recognition um, for me. And again, so like, if there's a way that I can kind of speed that up for other people, um, I think that's, that's really important to me. Um, and I also, I, I think, and I hope, and it seems like from what I know that it is not nearly as hard now as it was when I was 14. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not as hard to figure out because if you're 14 now, you probably do know that gay people exist. Um, you, it's probably not a big, huge shock, um, I mean it wasn't like I I knew a couple of gay people, but they were all like my couples, my parents' age and older. Um, there weren't any gay people on TV or in the books that I read. Um, mostly I read books. There weren't there weren't any gay people in them ever. Um, I was, I think, 15 or 16 the first time I read a book with an LGBTQ character. It was Melinda Lowe's Ash. Um, and I remember it. Uh, so Cause I read thousands of books and I'd never seen one with somebody like, you know, with, with the same experiences I had. Um, so I'm hoping that, you know, I, when I wrote the book, I wrote it thinking that it was going to be like, it was going to change everything. And then everything kind of changed around the book while I was writing it and trying to get it published. Um, things managed to change without my, you know, brilliant work of staggering genius. I don't know how they did it. But um, I'm definitely I'm definitely glad that things found a way to change on their own.
0: Yes. And and of course, your book is a part of, of that changes as we continue to see more and more diversity in the books that we read. So now at the end of every episode, I do ask a random question, uh, not having to do anything we've talked about. So my question for you is if you had a secret society, what would the mission be?
1: I mean, it would, it would be to get books to people who need them. Um, It would be to get books into the hands of people who haven't had access to them. You know, I've worked with um, kids who are graduating high school with really limited literacy um, because they haven't gotten a proper education, worked with kids who are, have never owned a book in their entire life because they haven't been able to afford one. Um, there's all the talk of like book banning in schools um, and not just young people, but like people of, of all ages who, you know, can't read the books that they want to read because, they're not out there, or they don't have access to them. Um, one thing that I think we don't think about when we talk about access to books is that, like, you can only have access to the books that show up in your, um, like, in your bookstore or in your library. But the vast majority of what is written is never published, and the vast majority of what is published never goes into any particular bookstore or library or other book dispensing outlet. Um, So yeah, if I could do a secret, we would be like a secret society where we sort of like, you know, um, I'm taking this idea from Q and Willow, which is a really wonderful bookstore in Queens, New York, and they have a like little secret basket under the registry. Um, And if you go there and you are an LGBTQ teenager and you say, hey, I need a book, from the book basket, you can just pick one and you can just leave with it. You can just have it. You don't have to pay for it. You don't have to tell your parents or ask them for 20 bucks to buy the book. Um, and that would be my legacy. Like, that would be the mission of my secret society as we would go go around the world connecting books to the people that need them.
0: All right, that brings this episode to a close. I will of course be leaving links for Anya in the description. So their website, which has all sorts of information that you can get in contact with them. And also a direct link to be able to buy the book uh, that is Queen of All, first of the trilogy, out now. And so that direct link will be there, but is also accessible through their website. And of course our website for the podcast is in the description as usual so that brings us to all of our social media instagram facebook and linkedin along with all the past episode past text from every episode and more contact information and resources from all of my prior guests and of course if you would like to donate to the podcast a link to do that is in the description as well along with my email if you would like to be a guest you can of course reach out thank you so much Anya for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time. Bye.
1: Thank you so much, everybody. Bye.